Welcome to Ghost Riders Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were an emotion, what emotion would you be? I would be dour. So today we're going to talk about haints, which the first time I ever heard that word, I was in my early 20s in the Ozarks. Essentially, it is a southern term or an Appalachian term that means haunt or ghost. If you research it, it's derived from African-American culture known as the Gullahs or the Geechee. And while I was researching their folklore, I came to understand the color haint blue, which I think is quickly becoming my favorite color. From now on, I think I'm going to refer to my eye color as haint blue. But this is kind of neat. So the story on haint blue is in order to repel evil spirits from plantations, porch ceilings were painted a soft blue. The color was meant to mimic water in an effort to keep any haints or spirits at bay. I don't think I've ever come across a blue porch or I didn't really think anything of it if I did. And what's interesting is it's supposed to mimic either the sea or the sky. And so it could be anywhere from a pale blue color to a blue green color. So I'm wondering if it's going to replicate any color of the ocean, would it be stormy gray? There's this ambiguity to haint blue that I really like. Haint blue first arrived from the dye produced on low country indigo plantations, originally used by enslaved Africans and later by the Gullah Geechee to combat haints and boo hags, evil spirits who escaped their human forms at night to paralyze, injure, or ride, the way a person might ride a horse. Who not a haunted night rider than the Headless Horseman? Another neat fact on my research, there is a reference to haints in To Kill a Mockingbird, and they call them hot steam. Hot steam is a ghost who cannot get to heaven, so it wanders about lonely roads. If you're walking along a road and pass through a hot spot of air, it might be a hot steam. And if you walk through him, when you die, you'll be one too. And you'll go around at night sucking people's breath. That was a quote from Jem, who I don't really remember. It has been ages, probably almost two decades since I read To Kill a Mockingbird. But there's this scene in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving that I think will be a good setup for the book that I'm going to be sharing, which is The Witch of Tin Mountain by Paulette Kennedy. And that book is a recommended read from Cooper's mom. The author cut Cooper's hair when he was a kid. So I second degree know this woman, which is kind of interesting. But let's focus on Sleepy Hollow for now. Van Tassel has hosted a party and the night is yawning to a close. The men are out on the porch smoking their pipes and talking. But all of these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of the kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood, so that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts, except in our long-established Dutch communities. 
The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from the haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassel's and, as usual, were doling out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Major Andre was taken and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention was made also of the woman in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the Headless Horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country and it is said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorite haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms, from among which its descent, whitewashed walls shine modestly forth like Christian purity, beaming through the shades of retirement. A gentle slope descends from it to a silver sheet of water bordered by high trees, between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson. To look upon this grass-grown yard where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think that there at least the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell, along which raves a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it, even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. Such was one of the favorite haunts of the Headless Horseman, and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of Old Brower, a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray in Sleepy Hollow, and was obliged to get upon behind him, how they galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge, when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw Old Brower into the brook, and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was immediately matched by a thrice marvelous adventure of Brom Bones, who made light of the galloping Hessian as an errant jockey. He affirmed that, on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he offered to race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it too, for Daredevil, Brombone's horse, beat the goblin horse all hollow, but just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sunk deep in the mind of Ichabod. So cool. One of my favorite lines in this, when a body is laid to rest, it scarcely has time to roll over in its grave before everyone that would know who it is, is gone. So my biggest recall to this was how the Headless Horseman, when he gets to the bridge, he releases from his horse in a clap of thunder and a flash of light. And so taking that knowledge and applying it to this excerpt that I'll be reading from The Witch of Tin Mountain by Paulette Kennedy, let me just read the back portion and then we'll slowly walk into the woods from there. 
It's not redemption, it's revenge. Blood and power bind three generations of women in the Ozark Mountains. So does an evil that's followed them across the decades. 1931. Graceland Dordery lives peacefully on Tin Mountain, helping her adoptive granny work her cures. Despite whispers that the women are witches, the superstitious locals still seek them out, whether to remedy arthritis or a broken heart. But when evangelist Josiah Bellflower comes to town promising miracle healing, full bellies, and prosperity, his rivals soon hold Tin Mountain in thrall and Granny in abject fear. Granny recognizes Josiah. Fifty years ago, in a dark and desperate moment, she made a terrible promise. Now Josiah, an enemy, has returned to collect his due. As Granny sickens and the drought-ridden countryside falls under a curse, Graceland must choose, flee Tin Mountain and the only family she knows, or confront the vengeful preacher whose unholy mission is to destroy her. It very much reminded me of Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. We have an old-timey setting, 1930s. In Something Wicked This Way Comes, a carnival comes into town. The ringleader, if I remember, is this devil. And here, in lieu of the carnival, it's this preacher who comes to town. He sets up a tent as his traveling church. And so that's where I'm getting these vibes. So I want to start by talking about this lighthouse in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. We're going to meet Gracelyn and her friend Abby, and we're going to understand why this lighthouse is in the middle of the Ozarks. We pass through the back pasture, nodding with cow parsley, and top the hill, the shadow of the lighthouse long and narrow on the grass. It's at least a hundred feet high and made of whitewashed field rock Abby's great-great-granddaddy Hiram Cash quarried from the hillside, its peaked top crowned with copper shingles. High windows blink in the setting sun, reflecting the clouds and purple-tinged sky. It's like something from a fairy tale, out of place compared to the dusty shantytown feel the rest of Tin Mountain has. When I first came here five years ago, I thought it strange for a lighthouse to stand in the middle of a forest, hundreds of miles from any ocean. But compasses don't work at all in these hills. They just spin and spin. Every now and again, teams of engineering students from the School of Mines come down to investigate and go back to Rolla, scratching their heads and muttering about ley lines and magnetic fields. But no one really knows why Tin Mountain is the way it is. If it weren't for the lighthouse, people would get lost all the time. And when people get lost here, they don't come back the same, if they come back at all. Abby undoes the latch on the lighthouse door and bumps her hip against it. The door judders open, sweeping an arc of dirt in its path. Inside, spiraling steps twist upward in the darkness. I'll get the lamp, she says, her voice husky. There's matches in my back pocket if you'll fetch them. My fingers dart into Abby's pocket. I fish around for the box of matches and pull them free, my face heating at having touched her in such a close way. She holds the paraffin lantern steady while I light it, the sharp scent of sulfur sparking between us. I follow her up the winding rockwork staircase, the cool walls growing close as we near the top. On the last step, she passes the lantern to me so she can push the hatch open with both hands. The hinges creak as the trap door falls back against the floor. Light floods into the tower, washing the steps gray. We emerge into an octagonal room with glinting windows on all sides. Ever since her paw first took sick, the job of lighting and tending old liberty fell to Abby. She's proud of the lighthouse and it shows. 
She spends every morning carefully polishing the windows and brass lantern fittings so Liberty will shine bright and true. She climbs the ladder, leaning up against the lantern housing. Watching her gets my head all woozy, even though I've seen her climb that rickety ladder dozens of times. There you go, staring again, she teases, throwing a smile over her shoulder. Her fingers dip into the slippery tallow, then stroke at the cotton, prepping the wick. Bring me that jug of kerosene over by the catwalk. Reservoir's dry. I walk carefully over the planks, trying not to look out the windows. I ain't never told Abby I'm scared of heights. If I did, she might never invite me up here again. I'm pretty good at faking brave, when something or someone is important enough to me. I heft the metal jug of kerosene, leaning back slightly to hug it to my belly as I waddled back to Abby. She leans down from her ladder and takes it. As she fills the reservoir, the sharp smell of kerosene stings my nose and sets my eyes a-watering. A few seconds later, there's the sharp pop, and the wick ignites. Flames shoot high within the lantern, and heat fills the glass-walled room. Abby sets the Fresnel lens and mirrors to turning, then climbs down from her perch. I shield my eyes from the brilliance of the reflected beam. It's like being too close to the sun. Go on out, Gracie. I'll be there in a minute. I open the glass door that leads to the lighthouse's gallery and step out. The wind blows a gust up my dress. I hug the curved side of the tower, my heart beating fast as a bumblebee's wings. Together we move to the railing and look out over the landscape. It's quiet up here, pretty too. The mountains ramble off in the distance, like slow purple soldiers, the setting sun tingling their peaks with gold. Abby flicks her cigarette butt over the edge of the lighthouse balcony and fixes me with a stone-faced glare. I seen something last night, Gracie. What? I whisper. I ain't sure what to call it. A haint, maybe? I'd just gotten Hortense in the barn for the night and heard a sound like heavy footsteps coming from the holler. I looked down and I saw a flickering light through the trees. At first, I thought it was just a hobo camp. That's when the screaming started. Next thing I knew, somebody took off up the hill. Looked like they were lit on fire. But it weren't like no fire I'd ever seen. The flames were all blue and cold. It ran plumb up to the old Sutter Cemetery, shrieking, and then just disappeared. Things got real quiet after that. Even the damn cicadas quit their racket. Abby lights another cigarette, her hands shaking. It took a long time for me to calm down. Reckon I ain't calm yet. Lands, Abby, that's quite a story. That's what Pa said, too. That's quite a story there, Abigail. She laughs dryly and kicks the toe of her boot against the metal balustrade. You believe me, though, don't you, Gracie? Abby ain't one for tall tales, and after what I seen the other night between Bellflower and Val, I'd believe anything. I sure do. Maybe it was Owen Sutter's haint. Folks say he set himself on fire after he murdered his family. I'm seeing things too, Abby, and I'm just as scared as you are. Feels like the whole world is going crazy in this heat, don't it? Like hell just decided to come right up topside? I grunt in affirmation. I used to think them old stories about curses and haints around Tin Mountain were falsehoods. Something for the old men on the mercantile porch to chew on, along with their tobacco. I ain't so sure about that anymore. So there we have it. This flash of light is running up the mountain, which reminds me of the Headless Horseman flashing at the bridge, and then how the old men sit at the porch chewing on tobacco and telling ghost stories. A direct parallel to the legend of Sleepy Hollow, where all the men at Van Tassel's party are sitting on the porch telling ghost stories. 
And so then, to my pleasant surprise, when I'm reading in the back about the author and her inspiration for this novel, I come across a very interesting story about this man in blue flame running up the hill. My decision to set my own Bell Witch-inspired novel in the Ozarks instead of Tennessee reflects the fact that many Appalachians, like my father, migrated to the Ozarks, bringing their stories, music, and history along with them. The two regions are quite similar in topography, socioeconomic status, and cultural heritage. The abundant underground springs and mineral-rich karst geology of the Ozarks Plateau contribute to the similarities and the folklore. Some unique regional phenomena can be confirmed by locals. For example, real places in the Ozarks, such as Magnetic Mountain and Magnetic Spring, have electromagnetic anomalies that have been experienced by residents for generations. The failure of compasses to settle on a direction in the vicinity of Tin Mountain, however, is entirely my own invention. Although paranormal researchers and mystics claim that the convergence of ley lines and iron ore deposits in northern Arkansas work as a sort of magnetic spiritual vortex. And who am I to argue? It makes for a great story. As for the rest of the strange phenomena occurring in Tin Mountain, a good percentage of the paranormal content was generated by my own family's tradition of oral storytelling and their personal anecdotes. My father, who grew up during the Great Depression, hailed originally from Tennessee, not far from where the Bell Witch haunting occurred. His recollections of his family's log cabin inspired the Sutter-Werner homestead, and some of his strange and unusual stories have made it into this book. The specter of the flaming man running up the hillside that Abby recounts was an apparition he saw himself as a boy. If you recall, Gracie is saying, as an aside, it's no weirder than what I've seen lately. And what she's referring to is this visceral scene. I go outside into the night. The cabin feels too close, too crowded. The air outside ain't any cooler. It's humid, hot, and stifling. This heat is enough to drive a person crazy. The last time the curse came through Tin Mountain, there was a flood. This time, if I had to wager, it's looking to be a drought. I go past our sheltering wards and through the trees, along the foraging trail, with a mind to cross the creek and check for Morris up at his still, a moonshine still. The moon hangs like a freshly sharpened scythe above my head, lending scant light to my steps. Suddenly, alongside the spring's warble, a low moan filters through the thicket. I stop short and listen. I hear heavy breathing, like the panting of some wild animal that's been hurt. Up ahead, movement flashes through the cedar boughs. I slowly creep forward until what I'm seeing becomes horrifyingly clear. There, on that same flat, mossy rock where Granny saw the portent of a hard summer to come, lies Val. She's naked, her eyes closed, her hands knotted in her hair. A man kneels between her pale, splayed legs. He's, oh god, they're, I step backward, bile rising in my throat. A twig snaps. The man raises his head. It's Josiah Bellflower. His eyes are pitch black, with that eerie shine of silver at their center. As he locks eyes with me, a shard of pain drives itself deep into my forehead. Suddenly, I'm seen again. Bellflower transforms. His sharp, jib-nosed looks fade and morph until a decrepit, aged creature hunkers over Val with ancient, sagging skin. He smiles, showing blackened teeth. He moves on top of Val. She wraps herself around him, her cries echoing as Bellflower begins to rut inside her. Shadows swirl around them both, hiding them from view. I turn and run until I'm back outside the cabin. I heave my guts into Granny's peonies. 
My head hurts so bad I think it might explode. A trickle of blood runs from one of my nostrils and I wipe it away with the back of my hand. What the hell is he? I stopped believing in God and the devil a long time ago, but with the sick feeling in my gut right now, I'd reckon he's something close to the latter. I now know with a certainty that Val ain't coming home. Bad, bad, bad. All of this is bad. And I'm in the thick of it, not knowing how to fix it. I would call that an incubus, but when Gracie says she's seen again, by that she means almost like a third eye, seeing things on this plane that belong in a separate plane. For example, when she's seen this thing shift from a man to a creature, Val isn't experiencing that. She thinks she's having sex with a man out in the woods, and Val is her aunt. That's all I've got for today. It's a perfect night to share these stories. We had storms yesterday and today. I've got the windows open to let the fresh rain smell in. I've got this cool breeze moving in, and it's just great. We were certainly surrounded by hate blue skies all day, so maybe that kept them away. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.